0: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're looking at the European Super League saga. On Sunday, 12 of Europe's biggest clubs announced their plans to form a breakaway Super League, cutting adrift other clubs in Europe. Their brazen plan drew a fierce reaction from fans, politicians, current and former players, and the regulators UEFA and FIFA. By Tuesday evening, it had collapsed with six English clubs, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City and Tottenham withdrawing from the proposal. So, where did it all go wrong, and what next for European football and the 12 rebel clubs and their owners? To discuss this, I'm joined on the line by Ken Early of the Second Captains podcast and an Irish Times sports columnist, and by Andrew Doyle, owner of League of Ireland football club Shelburne. Ken Early, welcome to Inside Business. This plan for European Super League lasted a full 72 hours. What went wrong?
1: Uh, well, I think you're giving it a bit too much credit there. I don't know if it made the 72 hour mark. Um, uh Carol, i mean everything went wrong really um from from the beginning i mean it's a it was a it was a terrible idea presented in a really appalling way which was chased off the stage in absolute disgrace uh, which was fully deserved
0: it's incredible really because the 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 plan i mean the clubs are owned by some very smart very successful people successful in business and other walks of life and yet they, they seem to misjudge this completely. They seem to get it very wrong. And indeed, even the, if you look at the website and the logo and so on, it all looked a bit amateurish for something that was supposed to be a Super League and a, and a new departure. What do, you, what do you put that down to? How did they get it so badly
1: wrong? Well, they don't. Uh, I mean, the question of ownership is an interesting one to think about. These are the owners of these clubs. So what does that actually mean? Who owns them, really? And what, what, does, what does owning a football club mean? mean doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want with it well we know now it, it it doesn't mean that like i mean it means i guess it means that if that if uh, the glazer family decided to sell Manchester united in the morning they would be the ones who would uh, you know they, they could they, they'd sell this commercial entity they'd receive the the money you know for the shares of the club they, they're the owners in that sense but they can't just do whatever they want they're not actually the only ones that own the club uh, and now you can see these clubs, as they all issue these grovelling apologies to the fans who were angry with them, talking about key stakeholders and stuff like this. So you can see, for instance, Liverpool's apology has uh, mentioned, oh, you know, we've received um, we've received valuable contributions from key stakeholders, both internally and externally. Contributions which, by the way, they didn't seek last week when they were making the decision. And now they're saying, oh, so, you know, they've been told by their players, by their coach, by their fans, We don't want this. Um, but they thought evidently that they could just sort of treat these, treat the fans as customers, treat the players and the the players and the coaches as, as, employees, rather than as they now call them stakeholders, they didn't see the need to at any point, seek the consent of all the other people who were involved. That's why people were so revolted by it. That's why people were so angry about it. The idea that this little group of billionaires could go away, cook up this scheme, and then present it as a fait accompli. And all of these other hundreds of millions of people who feel like they're involved in this are just told, well, that's just the way it is. We're the owners. They're the rules. Uh, we get to do what we want, and you just have to, you just have to go along with it. And people said, No. And the fury and outrage that people felt when when that, was, that proposition was put to them has eventually caused this little group of billionaires, it turns out, not as internally cohesive uh, as they would have wished, to cut and run.
0: Yeah, Ken, interesting, obviously, that Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund, uh, Paris Saint-Germain, and maybe one or two others decided not to join this breakaway, at least when it was first announced. Why do you think that was? Was that on moral grounds and that it was, you know, it was, it was an outrage, um, or were there financial reasons behind it? Did they just get lucky perhaps? Uh,
1: different reasons in each case. Uh, I mean, the similarity between, for instance, PSG and Bayern Munich is that both are very, very financially secure. Um, and both are at the top of the tree in their respective countries in, in terms of money and power. Uh, Bayern, because they've just been accumulating wealth for so many decades and have been in such a dominant, sort of almost a monopoly position in Germany for so long. And PSG, because of, they've got this money from an external source, which is to say Qatar. So neither of those clubs are under the sort of financial pressure that Real Madrid claim to be under. Real Madrid's president, Fiorentino Perez, is probably the most humiliated of of all the billionaires because he was the only one who came forward to really speak well agnelli at juventus also did but perez was the most visible he was going to be the president of the super league the pre- the first president of of super league and he's you know this tremendously important man in spain he's uh, always had everything his own way so th- so to see him in this way but okay so the point that he was making was we have to do this We've had the, the COVID crisis. It's cost us hundreds of millions. We're all going bankrupt. We need to take this action to save football. By which he means to save Real Madrid and like a couple of other. We have to. We have to have somebody to play against. So a couple of other clubs will have to get on the rescue boat. Uh, Liverpool uh, also in this sort of position. Having you know th- their situation is uh, just last year everything was going great then suddenly this season has been a disaster for them on the field. They're going to not make the Champions League, it looks like. Uh, And they've also lost unexpectedly like £100 million, or however much it turns out to be. Massive losses due to the closure of the stadium because of the coronavirus. So uh, just at a point when they might need to reinvest in their team, they face not only big unexpected losses due to COVID, but also unexpected losses due to underperformance uh, on the field. So... So they're saying, okay, we're under massive pressure. We need to do this. You know, remember that the, that this uh, Super League, they were all going to get like two or 300 million euros up front from JP Morgan. Actually, what they're doing is refinancing. That's actually what's going on here. So the, your, your question is about PSG and Bayern. They didn't have the need to sort of refinance. They're, they're not under that sort of pressure. But there's political reasons too. In the case of Bayern and Dortmund, these are clubs which are 50% plus one on, at, at a minimum owned by their supporters it so happens that german football supporters tend to be very against these types of things they tend to be very against uh, ideas which tend towards increasing the level of commercialism in football so these clubs have to take account of that in a way that liverpool for instance or Manchester united owned in theory, by these billionaires in America, they didn't think they needed to be accountable. They thought they could do what they liked with the, with these things. So they, well, I own it. I can do what I want with it. Whereas in Germany, the the fact that the fans have a voice in this is formalized in the actual structure. With PSG, there's also a political consideration, uh, which is that BN Sports, the Qatari sports broadcaster, uh, is A, signed on to broadcast the Champions League for, for a couple more seasons. So they've already made this sort of financial commitment to the existing structure, which was going to be obviously kind of kicked kicked to the curb by this move. And then there's the fact that Qatar is hosting the World Cup in, in 2022. And maybe at this point, given that there's already been protests, uh, sort of a protest movement developing against the Qatar World Cup, we saw it over the last international break, maybe they felt the judicious move at this point was not to be seen to be leading a further maybe unpopular move against the existing structure, but rather to hang back and see which way the wind was blowing. And obviously that became clear pretty quickly which way the wind was blowing. And in that respect, PSG and Bayern must be feeling pretty happy about the decisions they made to stay out.
0: Andrew Doyle, you own Shelburne Football Club in the League of Ireland. Um, You're in the first division this season. Obviously, the League of Ireland is one of the smaller leagues uh, within Europe. Um, The romance of football is such that last September, AC Milan came to Tallis Stadium play Shamrock Rovers in the Europa League and uh, brought Zlatan and and all of that unfortunately there were no fans in the stadium but there was still a great buzz around the fixture if this plan had gone ahead that kind of fixture could never have happened again because AC Milan would have been part of the super League elite and Shamrock Rovers would have been on the outside looking in and Shelburne uh, back in 2004 were famously only 90 minutes away from qualifying for the Champions League group stages taking on Deportivo La Coruña in the semi-final stages. So I'm just wondering, against all of that kind of backdrop, what do you thought of this plan?
2: Well, I, I, I thought it was um, the culmination of 25 years of uh, uh, threats and pressure by the G14 clubs against uh, UEFA. I, I think you have to look at all of this in context. Um, you know, yes, there was a, there was a great match in, in Tala Stadium a few weeks ago uh, or months ago, uh, but that's a very, very rare thing these days. You, you have to look at the broader context. The, the, the um, elite clubs have been uh, pressuring UEFA and succeeding in, in creating what is already a de facto closed competition, The the most objectionable thing, and there were many, about the Super League uh, was that it was overtly a closed league, which breaches all of the sporting principles uh, of the European sporting model. But if you look at the facts in the 1970s, 40 percent of the clubs which won the Champions League were from outside the big five leagues in the 1980s it was 30%. In the 1990s, it was 20%. In the noughties, it was 10%. And guess what? In the last decade, it's been 0%. So it's already a de facto closed league. So I know there's a huge amount of emotion uh, at play here at the moment. And, and and it's wonderful that this thing has been uh, dismembered in, in in the way that it has. But if you look at what UEFA did, in fact, Approve on Monday after huge pressure from those clubs. It, it increases the competitive imbalance problem, and the the um, which is which which is arises in two guises. First of all, um, the big four leagues in Europe have guaranteed access to the Champions League competition proper. So the the the, the top four clubs from from the big four nations. Get 16 of the 32 slots in 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 the first round of the Champions League. Irish clubs have to um, travel all around uh, Europe to all sorts of uh, interesting places um, at enormous costs, which they can't afford, uh, in order to have any prospect and win four of them before they have any prospect of getting to that to that level. So that's the first uh, problem which has arisen over that period and been driven over that period. The, the second problem is the allocation of funding is hugely biased towards the, 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 the bigger leagues, even to the point where part of the funding is, is allocated against um, the size of the media rights market in those leagues, which is obviously vastly larger because they have vastly larger populations. And to give you an example, last season, um, Man City got to the quarterfinals uh, of the Champions League, disappointing performance by their standards uh, and by their objectives, they received a hundred million euro in prize money for doing that. Um, the 40 UEFA member countries, which did not have a participating club in the round of 32 uh, because they've they're financially destitute in effect, uh, or many of them are, uh, received in aggregate to spread across the, I haven't counted the exact number of clubs. It's certainly in the region of 1,000 professional clubs, just short of 26 million. So, you know, sadly and unfortunately, it is fundamentally about money and allocation of, of money because since the Bosman ruling in 1995, the best players go to the biggest uh, markets because the biggest markets have the biggest leagues because they have the most TV subscribers. And... uh as a consequence, since ninety five, uh, the bigger leagues have got much stronger and much more powerful politically, and the smaller league leagues have become much weaker. Uh, so th- th- that has resulted in a, a de facto closed Champions League as we have it, which will be increasingly closed now as a result of the changes that were approved on Monday and announced on Monday, which nobody has really focused on because of this other hilarious fiasco Um, and there is no competitive balance at all like Celtic for example you take Celtic they the odd year say once every three or four years they make the round of 32 of the Champions League then they come up against uh, PSG now PSG playing Celtic isn't a match for PSG it's a chore it's something they have to get through and uh, I think last time they played or the time before Celtic lost 11 or 12 won on aggregate. Nobody wants to see that. And that's because of the size of the market in which Celtic play. It's a tiny market. They they get two and a half million pounds a year, approximately, in media rights income. It, it, it's, it's, it pales into uh, minuscule irrelevance relative to the money that uh, the, the uh, bigger leagues uh, receive. And... The the, the the further consequence of, of of the underlying trends over the last 25 years uh, has been that in order to keep everybody on board with this um this process which unfortunately UEFA have had to do they've had to try and hold things together um it's caused huge damage to the national leagues around Europe because even you know for for Irish clubs um, who will play in in the uh, first qualifying round? Say Shamrock Rovers playing the first qualifying round this year of the Champions League. They'll receive a quarter of a million euro for, just just for playing for that match. Quarter of a million euro. Um, that's about half the entire playing budget of some of the teams that Shamrock Rovers play in the in the league. So what's actually happened, in fact, over the over this period is is that. Um, the, the 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 national leagues, as a result of the European money, have become hugely less competitive. And just to give you an example of that, um, in the last thirty years, in say take Sweden, Norway, uh, uh, Denmark, and Scotland, in the last thirty years, sixteen percent of the clubs which have won the national title. Uh, were from outside the local elite, elite the, the national elite, the Rosenborgs and the 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 uh the the Mamos and so forth. In the previous 30 years, the 60s, 70s and 80s, what I consider to be the, the real football years, the real uh, uh years where, where the the, the dream uh, was alive the lead the dream is no longer alive um, but uh in the, in that period 46 percent of the national competition winners were uh, from outside the local elite. So if you take, again, Scotland, for example, it's just, you know, it's a it's a game of Celtic and Rangers. And it's, OK, Scotland's a bad example because it's always been a game of Celtic and Rangers. But in these other countries, it's all evolving in that direction as well.
0: Sure. What about that, Ken Early, um, that football had effectively sold its soul a long time ago? And, and perhaps UEFA you, you don't have clean hands in all of this, in spite of the fine words from... Alexander Seferin saying that this um, these twelve clubs were spitting in the face of tradition and, and fans because the Champions League had become, as Andrew has sort of pointed out, there it had become more and more elitist over the years, hadn't it?
1: Yeah, no, I mean I agree with with pretty much pretty much everything Andrew was saying. Uh, it's it's true. Uh, you know, again, it's 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 hard to know what the solution is. I mean, football has tried to um put up barriers to uh i mean as andrew talked about the way in which um since bosman um players have have gravitated towards the biggest markets uh and the richest leagues um and that used, i mean there's always been some markets which are bigger and some leagues which are richer but there also used to be barriers to uh players being able to do that and also for, to to there, there used to be barriers to people and capital moving across borders which no longer exist certainly not within the european union anyway remember that bosman was a that's a, that's like a european court decision you know that's a, it was like this is a a restriction on um his his freedom to work you know it's 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 an infringement of the, the four freedoms or whatever um and that's kind of been the case with with whenever football tries to you know have a foreigner rule or something like this you know you, we can only have three foreigners you know it has to you know try to encourage for for you know leaving aside the question of whether that's an effective measure to sort of improve football in your country the fact is that when it, when football tries to kind of to make these sorts of rules to you know protect things that things need need to be protected these things have largely kind of been swept away now. It's it, it's kind of it's a it's a it's a pretty much an open playground for money to do as it wants in in, in European football. I mean, what the solution to that? Is you know, I, I don't know. I mean, do you get do you get the European Commission to sort of say, okay, um, actually, sport is a kind of an exception to some of these rules? You know, how, you know, how does that sort of get through a court? I mean, these these are kind of complicated questions. I mean, I I agree with what Andrew is saying, um, but again, it's like. <laughs> It's a, it's quite an intractable problem.
2: I think, Kieran, uh, that there are. I, I I personally see two potential um, routes to a solution. You you got to identify the problem first, and and, and the problem is the the huge um, competitive imbalance caused in large part by the relative size of the of the markets. Um, you know, the Irish market's a five million person market, and the German market's an eighty million person market. So it's not at all surprising that Germany has a, has. Uh, what is it, over a billion uh, in media rights income and Ireland has, the Irish clubs have uh, zero. Uh, now, that's the problem. So, and, and, and I, as with everything in football, it's a motive. So when you come up with solutions, you know, you, you better have your helmet on. And uh, um, my view is that there are two uh, areas of solution. F- first, uh, the first area is on regulation. UEFA, I don't envy Alexander Seferin. He's, he's had a very, very tough job. Uh, he's from a smaller country, um, Slovenia, and he, he uh, has done uh, the best job that he can do to stand against these clubs. And the beautiful thing about this threat is that they've been, they've been, they've been making it for a quarter of a century, but now they've finally played their hand and they're a busted flush that's a very, very good thing for European football because it puts the power base back with UEFA. and uh, But UEFA needs support because, you know, I'm a former lawyer and, and I won't get into the detail, but basically the EU law doesn't really... Um, tend to tread that far into the regulation of football it did with bosman and and it, it can in other areas and it would have with this super league had it had it proceeded but um the, the 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 first area where change can happen is a change to the regulation of the game um where it's more robust and where UEFA with the support of the eu commission can uh, stand up to these clubs and say, well no, you're not getting vast' proportions of these funds. If you take the basic principle, the basic principle is uh, solidarity, the principle of solidarity, which basically means the clubs at the top of the pyramid must pour money down to the clubs lower down the pyramid, and that the pyramid must be roughly equal at each layer or level. Now, it's never been roughly equal at each layer or level, but it's become increasingly imbalanced, as as we've discussed. But quietly in 2016, um, As part of the changes, which were again demanded by those clubs, and and they succeeded, um, the amount of solidarity payments, which was only 5% of the total money that that is received from the Champions League, was quietly reduced to 4%. 4%. So you you reduce it by 20%, and those clubs consider it a rounding error. For clubs like uh, Shelburne, it's a hugely material fact. And uh, so, so, so the, what's the solution? The, secondary, the, the first solution is you, you, you pass footballing laws, which is UEFA's job, which increase the solidarity payments to uh, 20% or 40% so that you can actually invest in grassroots football uh, in support of young people. Because at the end of the day, football, it's about the viewers and the fans, but it's about young people playing the game. And secondly... Uh, the second solution, which is, um, you, know, you know, a little more emotive uh, in, in terms of the, the, the emotion of talking about football, is transnational leagues. Now, the reason why, in my opinion, transnational leagues uh, are a good idea is, is the very reason that, that uh, we've discussed. It's impossible for a club in a market of five million people with no media rights income to compete with a club that's in a market the size of Germany or, or uh, Spain with 47 million people or Italy with 60 million people. That's impossible. So f- and, and the reason that this arose originally is just a historical fact. And the historical fact is that when the people who set up football originally set it up, they decided to you know create the markets around nation-state boundaries. Well, if you remove those nation-state boundaries, and as, as was done in rugby... Uh, and you create bigger markets, then you create a higher level of competition for the clubs who weren't playing on sporting grounds, weren't playing at the higher level of competition. So the proposal that, uh, that, that, that I was involved in was to uh, create an additional layer in the period above Ireland, Scotland, Sweden, Norway and Denmark, and to take the elite clubs, which always win the National League anyway, let's face it, and put them competing against one another, So that they play a standard, you know, which is more uh, akin to their their level. So Celtic are not playing Ross County, uh, with all due respect to Ross County or Livingston, uh, who have attendances, average attendances, uh, I think, of two and a half thousand and four and a half thousand respectively against Celtic's fifty one. And you have them play Rosenborg and Copenhagen and Malmo and and a club or two from Ireland. And what that does for Ireland is it means our national league uh, our uh, Premier League, not only carries the um, the sporting merit of winning the competition, you also have direct access to this new layer of competition uh, where you where you can where the best Irish club or clubs can compete against much bigger clubs. That improves Irish football for a number of reasons first of all. Irish, the most talented Irish young players go to play for those clubs. Secondly, the solidarity payments are very significant. They're certainly more than zero, which is what we get from media rights. And they're also more than €40,000, which is what Shelburne got last year from the so-called solidarity payments, um, which just about covers some of the kit. And uh, so, so that, to me, is, is, is the solution. And what, you, what, what that gives rise to, yes, more money, but unfortunately, money counts in football these days. And anyone who tries to ignore that fact is just
1: wearing a blindfold. Um, but how does that work, Andrew? Sorry, could I just ask? Um, I mean, is it not replicating the sort of the problem of the Super League in the sense that, like, who who would be representing Ireland in this league? And how do we decide? I mean, is there is it always the same club? Uh, or a or, or, or number of clubs from Ireland that, that are in this league? Is it, a, is it a thing that goes alongside the domestic league or is effectively replacing it for the clubs that are in it? What, how would that work?
2: How it, works, uh, how it would work, uh, Ken, is, is, look, there are four principles of European sport. Uh, competitive balance, solidarity, promotion and relegation, open access, which is the one that was most breached by the Super League, and access to UEFA competitions. So w- w- what you do is you have an uh, additional competition that sits above our league and the Scottish league and so on and so forth and every year the, the the leading teams in the national league gain promotion to this league and and the and the weaker teams from the respective countries now I won't get into the detail of it because you have to come up with a complex So say, say
1: if if for instance um you know Bohemians won the Atlantic League and in second position Was Shelburne, hypothetically, and then you know beneath them were all the other teams, Bronby and Celtic and whoever. Does that mean that Shelburne would be relegated, uh, despite having finished second in the in the sort of the the big league? They would be then replaced by another Irish team that would come into the first round. No,
2: it it, it, it doesn't. I can get into the micro detail of this if you like, but it, it it doesn't.
1: Um, there are. I'm just trying to work out. Well, I'm just trying to work out how it's different from the the kind of the problem that the that that Florentino Perez's Euro League has of sort of saying we are the elite now and that's just the way it's going to be from now on.
2: Okay. Well, um, the 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 first reason is that uh, it 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 brings back um, higher levels of competition to the countries who have lost that higher level comp- of competition, so that they can access European football. So. Let let me get into more detail. And so the essential structure, and one version of the essential structure is that the the bottom two or the bottom three uh, clubs in the league are automatically relegated. Uh, you have a minimum uh, proportion of clubs uh, from each country in the league, and uh, that that minimum always stays the same because uh, the say the say the two Irish clubs. Uh, One of them gets relegated or may get relegated and then uh, is replaced by another. So you always have two, you always have five uh, Scottish and and, and so forth. So the bottom three clubs are relegated automatically in favour of their national champions. Okay. so then you've got two other countries who whose champions haven't got access to this competition, which is a problem.
0: Mm.
2: And uh, you 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 therefore have a, um, a playoff between those two uh, champions, and the winner plays the uh, lowest-ranking team in the competition from its country. Right. And, and just to deal with your other point, the, you know, if the, as is very unlikely, it was right. Rovers and, and Shells and we came second, if you're in a, the, the top half of the league, you're not eligible for relegation, and therefore the runner-up in the national uh, playoff that I mentioned would play its national champion. And so so you so it's in a sense it's it's slightly American in that it's slightly convoluted but you you have to do that when you're trying to solve problems. And what does all of that do? Well, what it does first of all is it gives Irish fans and Irish players and Irish sports fanatics the opportunity to watch a higher level of football than we currently have, rather than our kids going to England at the age of you know, at a very young age, and compromising their education, and 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 uh, and so forth, and and with ninety nine point nine percent of them coming back, um, what it also does is uh, make. And this isn't particularly the case in Ireland, but it makes the national league a more competitive league because Celtic and Rangers, and uh, depending on how you structure it, Aberdeen and uh, Hibbs are 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 perhaps move up to to the new division and uh, therefore it's a more meaningful competition. So the clubs that uh, these days are no longer able to uh, uh, win the national championship have a chance. And not only do they have a chance of winning the SPL in this case, they also have a massive opportunity to get into a much bigger league, which is huge. And it makes those clubs much more investable. It makes them much more relevant and it makes the sporting um, competition much more competitive. And then to deal with your, your question around uh, access to Europe, well, what you simply, you know, in, in, in your mind's eye, you have to imagine a country that is made up of five countries. It's just one country from a National League point of view, but it's five countries. Um, so, you know, Germany has lots of big provinces, so it's it's like you know, you're removing those provincial borders and creating one big league to create Germany. Well, this is the Atlantic League or whatever you want to call it. Um, in terms of getting into Europe, uh, you, you have to discuss, as we have, and, and, and engage constructively with UEFA about solving that problem and putting this league at the appropriate level of access within the, the access model uh, relative to its strength. So, it, you know, it'll probably fit in somewhere in the top 10, I would imagine. Um, but, you know, that will be dictated by com- competition. And which clubs, and you asked Ken about which clubs would get into this competition, that's dictated entirely by sporting merit. Whoever wins the Irish National League, our Premier League, the year before this uh, league starts is the team in the league.
0: Andrew, your plan ultimately um, d- didn't come to fruition. Celtic and Dermot Desmond, I know, weren't uh, supporters of it. But maybe you could just share with us a little bit about um, Shelburne at the the minute. How much does it cost? What's your budget for Shelburne this season? You're in the first division now, which is the second tier of League of Ireland football. So, you know, what are the incomings and the outgoings for a club like Shelburne?
2: Well, I won't tell you what the incomes and outgoings are, uh, Ciarán, but I'll tell you that the the income always equals the outgoings. Um, We have no debt. And we 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 break even every year because we're a responsible club.
0: What kind of budget, um, annual budget, do you have?
2: I can't tell you that because my competitors will hear. So, but it's it's uh, you know it's it's not significant. And and when you describe me as the owner of Shelburne, uh, you know owning an asset, uh, a thing like Shelburne isn't. Oh, you're not. It doesn't go in the uh, the asset column on the balance sheet. It goes somewhere else. Look, Shelburne is is a um, a football club of huge heritage and huge history, and it's about you know our objective this year is for our women's team to win the Premier League, and our women's team is brilliant uh, under Noel King, and for our men's team to win the first division under under uh, a really talented young coach in in, in Ian Morris. Um, our mission as as a club is is to give young people their best chance to fulfil their potential as sportsmen, sportswomen and in life. And, and so, you know, it's much more than, than just a about winning the league or whatever, which is obviously important. And um, so to do that, we've, we've recruited Alan Caffrey, the top sporting director in Ireland. We have Damien Duff as our under 17s coach doing a great job. We've set up a, a thing called the Shelburne Opportunity Network, which is a group of twelve senior business people from different sectors who give their time for free to our kids uh, and their parents where where they're not whether where they're under eighteen uh, to advise them on career and and, and opportunities and, and open their minds to areas they may not already be aware of. We have a partnership with St Patrick's Mental Health uh, Services where we we promote youth. And mental health issues very proactively and we we uh, engage with uh, schools and clubs in the in the area around around those issues and, and also you know we have coaching sessions with the schools and and clubs with our senior players from the men or the women's side and so and so on so it's much more than just a football club and and uh, i think the same applies to to in fairness many of our competitors in in, in the league of ireland it's it's a it's much more than just that and uh, you know i th- i think and and by the way if <laughs> if there's anyone out there who is either uh, a foolish investor like me or a or or wants to get involved or volunteer they should just contact our our ceo David.O'Connor at shelburne sc.ie
0: Right, okay. Thanks for that plug, uh, Andrew. Ken, what about this point about heritage? It seems to have been something that was missing in this whole formation of the European Super League. They were throwing out a lot of the heritage and tradition of uh, European club football that had been built up over many decades. And it's a curious one, isn't it? Because if you look at American sports, heritage is actually quite important in many ways. I remember being in the Red Sox. Um, stadium a number of years ago in, uh, in Boston and they have these um, seats that date back decades and they're, they're really small seats um, bleachers or something they call them and um, they've kept this particular section because of the heritage and the connection with, uh, with, with the old Red Sox uh, you know uh, legacy if, if you like and, and the seats were sort of built for smaller people um, than what you have uh, these days and yes that seems to have been lost on the FSG people who also own Liverpool
1: yeah, well, you know, baseball is, is kind of... Um, a lot of baseball grounds are like that, the, these sort of nostalgic... Uh, you know, they're like, oh, we've built this stadium to look like a 1950s baseball stadium, even though it's like, you know, um, it's built according to 2010 specifications. I think it's mainly because they want to make the actual audience of baseball uh, feel like they did when they were children in the 1950s, um, because it has got a really old audience, uh, that sport. So, the, so, the, So it's kind of... There's a bit of a kind of, you know, if you go to Disneyland and you get Main Street USA, like I mean, that's what baseball stadiums are almost designed like these days. I mean, in terms of, um, in terms of football, like I just I just feel as though they they kind of like why do why do people react badly against it? I think mainly it has to do with this the just the arrogance of it, you know, the kind of. You know, we've come up with this, and it's a fait accompli now. And you better just you 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 just have to get on with it. And people do have a reaction against it because I I think like the emotional attachment to football that people have it goes back to you know their own childhood, goes back to you know playing the game as 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 kids. And, you know how how that made them feel. You know, go the the sort of family members who they kind of first got introduced to football with you know, maybe some of them aren't around anymore. You know what I mean? There's like powerful memories, powerful emotional associations there, um, which are, I suppose, tied to the, the structure of these competitions to some extent, you know, um, Alex Ferguson talking about his, uh, I mean, Alex Ferguson put out a statement after the, the, you know, this, the Super League news broke and he, he, he sort of, he didn't really say much. He didn't sort of condemn it outright. He, but what he talked about was his fondness for the competitions that did exist. um, you know, and how it felt like climbing Everest when with Aberdeen, you know, he won the Cup Winners' Cup, and, and and these kind of, and how great that was, and you know, he obviously was was feeling regretful that this was all about to be binned. You know, or like they're 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 kind of saying we're going to reset the clocks to zero. You know, it's all about the Super League now, kind of like you know, in, you you get people talking about you know Alan Shearer is the top goal scorer in, in Premier League history with 260 goals but like he's way off being the top goal scorer in english football history if you know what i mean but that's sort of that's you know that's been forgotten about people don't talk about that it's kind of from 1992 is when these stats tend to date and they kind of i suppose were were threatening to do that again i don't know if if, you know um i I just feel as though people's relationship to the game is something that goes back usually, usually most of their lives and so there is like memory is an important part of it and a move that sort of sought to just kind of be in it all, you know, at, at one stroke, which effectively it would have done, you know, for, for, for these clubs anyway, and for, and would have affected how the, you know, the, these league titles would have become kind of baubles, you know, like, who, oh, who won the English league this year? It doesn't really matter. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not a significant competition because the main competition is this other thing. Yeah. I think that was part, probably part of the reason why people were reacting against it. Yeah.
0: Ken, where, where does it go from here? Um, there have been calls for, Gary Neville has been talking about an independent regulator um, needed. There's talk of a fans-led review. Um, I, I mean, the Champions League, as Andrew mentioned earlier, um, has been, or is, is proposed to be restructured. There's also been calls for the Glaziers to go at uh, Manchester United and for FSG and John Henry to go at Liverpool.
1: Well I mean Gary Neville loves loves talking about independent regulator but I don't really know what this regulator is supposed to do like what what are the powers vested in this regulator how how is that going to be organized won't the big clubs just buy the regulator isn't it like <laughs> does, does an independent regulator not usually end up in the pockets of the richest interests of whatever it is the regulator is supposed to be regulating is that not just what happens to regulators uh, I don't know if that's a magic Like, it it just seems like words. I don't understand it as a solution. Like, the Glazers are... are, I don't think they really care. I mean, their their interest is in the capital appreciation of Manchester United. You know, whatever causes the share price to increase in the long term is good with them. I don't think they're going to sell it now. I mean, I don't know. You know, maybe if you're to take seriously what um, Fiorentino Perez was saying and and what a couple of the other sort of chairmen were saying when they were pushing the idea... They are in, in, a, in a serious economic crisis. They're losing money hand over fist, and they can't make money in the current structure. If that's true, then I suppose there's, there's there's trouble ahead for these clubs. But, you know, we'll wait and see. I mean, I see Atletico Madrid have put out a statement today saying, we have uh, decided to, we we agreed to join the Super League on Monday, for reasons that no longer exist, and you're like, well, <laughs> I, I thought the reason, I thought the reason was you were you were in a financial crisis. You're saying that's all been solved. These reasons have gone away. You know, it just so so. I don't know. I mean, I, what you, obviously Ed Woodward, the the kind of manager, the front man, the guy's front man of United has already resigned. Uh, maybe there'll be a couple more of them, but I don't really think the owners. Are people there? Are people who are thinking long term? You know, they want to. They want to sell the club eventually. I suppose that's the, that's the end game. But I don't think, unless that these warnings about financial crisis really are are even more serious than than we've been led to believe. I don't think they're going to be rushing to the market just yet.
0: Andrew, a fun word to you. What do you think happens next in this whole saga?
2: Well, I, I agree with everything that Ken said. I, I I think I think what happens next is is that um the the well firstly and, for, and foremostly the american model of sport has been beaten out of europe um and the european model has prevailed in this in this uh fiasco and the the, the next step the next proactive step that should happen is irish politicians the fai who 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 are one of the 55 members there's only 55 votes in, in 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 UEFA and the FAI is one of them so does Iceland you know so it's not difficult for those 40 countries i mentioned earlier to influence things and it's their responsibility to influence things and to 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 bring back the 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 the, the, the romance to the game which ken was talking about and which in my opinion is gone and just one final point the The strange thing is happening in Irish football. League of Ireland grounds are uh, full. Before COVID, our first two home games last year, sellouts. Um, I think people are moving back towards real sport and real football because there's real romance. And the Premier League, well, it's just kind of a, it's a polished product you watch on TV sometimes.
0: Okay, we'll leave it there. Andrew Doyle of Shelburne and Cairnery, thank you for joining us good to be with you cheers okay that's it for this week from inside business my thanks to ken early and andrew doyle for their contributions suzanne brennan produced the show with jj vernon on sound remember you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the irish times business feed on twitter linkedin and facebook each day i'm Kieran hancock until next time take care and stay safe